If you would take your scriptures, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 14 through 21. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Would you give ear to the reading of God's word? For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we come to your word this morning to take our fill of your wisdom. We know prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from you as they were carried along by your Holy Spirit. Our prayer is that you will unlock for us the knowledge of your word and guide us in following your wonderful plan of redemption and lead us into deeper and deeper pools of wisdom. Help us. Help us to know you better, O Lord, that our lives might bring glory to you. Hear us in Christ's name and bless us through his words. Amen. Paul has been working hard in this letter to show the truth of the great doctrine of justification by faith alone and how through the church God is prepared to reveal his plan of redemption to a lost and dying world. In chapter 3, he has shown that the church has two main responsibilities in the work. The first was seen in the first 13 verses of chapter 3, And that was to declare the wisdom of God to the world. Paul now comes to this through the contemplation of the mystery which God had kept hidden through the generations until the work of Christ was complete. This mystery, or this truth, was hidden until after Christ and then divinely revealed through God's servants, the apostles, and especially Paul. The heart of this mystery as Paul explains it, was that the central plan of God was to send his Messiah into the world to live the perfect life, to die the atoning death, and to win the resurrection victory over sin, Satan, and death. Then after his resurrection, to send the Holy Spirit to bring his people together in Christ, both Jew and Gentile, into one body, the church of Jesus Christ. This church was planned before creation, to take the place of the Jewish theocracy, or that is the Jewish nation, as where God's people would come together. This is a great and wonderful mystery, that God would come into his own creation and do for men what they could never do for themselves. But that is not the end of the mystery. It goes on in that God not only has accomplished redemption for his people through the glorious works of Jesus Christ, but has through the ministry of the Holy Spirit made his covenant promise of 
I will be your God and you will be my people. A living reality through his church for both Jew and Gentile. The church is the heart and soul of this great mystery. Man has a great need. Because of his sin in Adam, he had lost any hope of fellowship with his creator. Paul shows that through the eternal purpose of God, some men are redeemed from the spiritually dead condition that made alive and made alive uh, in Christ and given the Holy Spirit as their guide and comforter throughout this life. All of this is a part of this great mystery. That those who are totally unworthy are made a part of God's family and given the precious gift of life in Jesus Christ. In this past last part of chapter 3, Paul comes to the point the whole idea just simply overwhelms him. He breaks into prayer for God's people, for those who make up the heart and soul of this great mystery. For those who were once lost but now are saved. For the elect, those chosen before the foundation of the world to be God's children. He begins with a very short but concise reason for his prayer. He then prays for the riches of God's great grace to fill the hearts and lives of those who have been touched by the hand of God. Third, he turns in his prayer to pray for the love of God. That through this great and marvelous love that comes into the heart with Jesus Christ, that all will be filled with a spiritual fullness that cannot be comprehended. Paul ends with this most wonderful of doxologies. In this doxology, he cries out to God, offering to him great and wonderful praise for all his faithfulness to those in his glorious church. The second responsibility Paul deals with in this work is the responsibility to grow in the love of God. He says this, he says this unto his prayer. He really wants to make this clear. He opens it for us as he prays for all believers. This is a very appropriate thing in that we as sinful men cannot in and of ourselves by our own power grow in Christ's love for our, for that matter, even begin to comprehend it without the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. That's the only way you're going to know love is when the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and makes it known to you. Paul is here praying for the whole church, for all believers. It is a prayer sparked by this wonderful review he has done of the grace of God in the lives of true believers. What is going to make us come alive in the proper understanding of this doctrine? The Holy Spirit opening our ears to hear and empowering our hearts to understand. Verses 14 and 15. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Paul repeats what he has already said back in verse 1 of this chapter. For this reason he has spoken of the church based on all of the theological groundwork he gave in chapters 1 and 2. Now, now he prays based on that same ground work. The groundwork is the grace God has bestowed on Jew and Gentile in sending Christ 
to tear down that middle wall of petition. Also in the building of this wonderful and glorious new spiritual sanctuary to house all of God's people who will believe on Christ and his work of redemption. Now, how does Paul come? He comes on bended knees. Now, I want you to really think about this. You must understand that posture in prayer can never be a matter of indifference. No, the scripture does not say we must assume one position over another. However, we see as we study prayer in scripture that posture always went along with the attitude of prayer. Paul goes to bended knees here because of the sheer weight of what he's praying about. When one comes to God confessing his sin, the posture must show the attitude of contrition and humility. When one comes with the joy of thanksgiving or the request for some need, the posture will be different because the attitude is different. The attitude Paul has here as he comes to the throne is one of great awe and humble reliance on the Spirit of God. He comes with a longing to see God work in the hearts, in the lives of those he is praying for. So he kneels before the awesome God, the God who has the power to answer his prayer. You also see an acknowledgement of who this God is that he has comes before. He is the Father and from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. This is the God of the visible and invisible church. The church here on earth and the church of all ages on earth and eternally in heaven. This gives you a little peek into the attitude of Paul. He has come to the throne of the eternal God and he shows his respect. Excuse me. He says, this is the God. This is the God who has brought all peoples together into one household, into one church, one body, and the church of Christ. He makes it clear in this statement that there are not two groups of God's people. There is but one group, and they all derive their name from this one God and Father of all the faithful, and it doesn't matter where they are. They can be here on earth in the visible church already in heaven with Christ in the invisible church awaiting in the wings as yet unborn. They will all be members of the one household of faith. Jews and Gentiles who place their trust in Jesus and in him alone will become brothers and sisters in this one great household. There is no division in God's house. There has never been any division and there will never be any division. Who all who come to God trusting in this perfect life and the work of Jesus Christ will find the fulfillment of the great covenantal promise given to Abraham for the faithful. I will be your God and you will be my people. Paul is praying for the believers of Ephesus and through them for all believers. He views all believers as his friends and he asks God for spiritual blessings. Spiritual blessings, get this now, spiritual blessings are the greatest thing we can ask for anyone. They should also be what we as believers seek and with the greatest enthusiasm both for ourselves and for our friends. 
Paul comes before God speak, seeking spiritual strength for all who name the name of Christ. Strength for the work and duty they are called to in Christ. Verses 16 and 17a. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is powerful. This is a powerful request. It's a request that God would come, open the windows of heaven, and give to all who believe and trust in him the divine attributes. I want you to think about this. When we pray a lot of times, what do we pray about? We pray about people who are sick. We pray about people who have trouble in the church. I want to ask you, how many times do you pray about their spiritual growth? That's the main reason for us coming before God for one another is to help build up the growth in each one of us so we grow closer to God. We get more familiar with him. We do more in our lives for him. It is his attributes that make God so glorious. His power is infinite. His love is great. His mercy and grace are rich beyond compare. His wisdom is iridescent. His justice is perfect. And we could go on and on and on. We should never stress one of his attributes above another. That's the liberal. the liberals do, what they have done with his love, which brings a distortion understanding of a distorted understanding of God and his plan of redemption. Charles Hodge, in speaking of this, says, It is not his power to the exclusion of his mercy, nor his mercy to the exclusion of his power, but it is everything in God that renders him glorious the proper object of adoration. To drop one of his attributes is to take away from him as God. Paul prays that all of God's marvelous attributes may be richly applied to the spiritual progress of all his people. His heart's desire for you as a believer is that God will strengthen you with power through the Holy Spirit in the inner man. Note, he says, in the inner man as opposed to the outer man. It is the heart that God deals with men through faith. Christianity is a religion of the ear, not the eye. The ear is the organ through which faith enters the man. The heart hears the word of God, and it comes through the ear. Romans 10, verses 9 through 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Later in verse 17 you're told, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Salvation begins in the heart and groweth, grows through, growth comes through the heart. It fills you. Your heart changes, and it begins to affect everything you do, everything you think. The heart is the center of all of life. This is why Paul is praying for the strengthening of the inner man. This is why he is praying that the Spirit of God will always be in your heart, molding you more and more every day into the image of Jesus Christ. You may want to note that this teaches something very different from what many are trying to teach today. 
that the giving of the Holy Spirit is a separate blessing people received after they're saved. Paul prays in such a way as to show that you cannot separate Christ and the Spirit. You cannot have Christ without the Holy Spirit, nor the Spirit without Christ. Romans 8, 9, and 10. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. This shows that faith is full surrender to God in Christ and that everything comes to the one who exercises this faith as has been promised in Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Paul prays for all believers, that they will experience the fullness of all that is God. He says in Ephesians 3.17 that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. In chapter Chapters 4 through 6, we find that Paul gives admonition after admonition to believers about living out their lives and working out their salvation before God. The goal has been laid down to be Christ-like in every aspect of our lives, to join together with one another in this glorious body, the church of Jesus Christ. However, in this prayer, Paul does not in any way play down the fact as believers we have a responsibility before God for this marvelous grace he has and continues to show us. There is a very clearly implied responsibility in this prayer. Believers must exert themselves to the utmost in using these attributes the Spirit is strengthening them in. You have to understand first that apart from the indwelling of Christ, you are absolutely powerless. You must show your thankfulness to God for all he has done and is doing for you right now. Please understand, we do not earn from God anything by our works. Our works are always done in response to God's grace. In Philippians 2, verses 12b through 13, Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Why do we work with fear and trembling? Because it's God who has first worked in us. The fear and trembling are not that we are concerned that we might do something wrong and lose our salvation. We do it out of awe for this great God who has saved us. We are always fearful and concerned that we are displeasing him. Not because he will disown us, but because we love him so much and want to always be pleasing in his sight. Paul prays these things for believers. And then he prays about why he is praying for these things. The ultimate purpose for the strengthening and for the indwelling is stated in verses 17b through 19 that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the right width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul knows. He knows that you can have great knowledge, 
that is a strong and understanding of the things of God, but still be dead in heart. Why? Look at 1 Corinthians 13 two. You might want to turn over there and catch this one if you don't have the paper. 1 Corinthians 13 two says, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Do you see love tops everything? You can see in the scripture people who had a direct line to God. People such as Balaam. You remember Balaam? But he did not know the love of God. These folks may have great spiritual discernment. But without the love of God, they have nothing. And thus are nothing but unregenerate sinners. Christ goes into a heart. He establishes himself by grace through faith in love. The abiding presence Paul is talking about in the inner man is the love of God. Paul says this love of Jesus Christ and his work on your behalf will spread. If you're being loving to others, they're going to be start being loving to others too. It will spread throughout your life to everyone around you and will make the work of Christ in your heart obvious. Therefore, he prays that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power. There's a twofold meaning here. One, that you will be rooted. Now, rooted like a living and growing tree. For a tree to have stability... It must have a root system that is proportional to the spread of its branches. The same is true for the Christian. There are many out there claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ that has this great looking crown of branches. But when the storms of life come, they're quickly and easily blown away. They somehow manage to put up a great front of faith, but when push comes to shove, there's no root of love for Christ in his word. Now, I think we're coming to a time we really need to understand this. What's going on in our nation today? Persecution of those who believe and trust in Christ. Well, you're going to have this, the, the, the ability, the power to stand against that persecution. To be sheep led as slaughter to the, to, the, to the slaughterer. Are we going to be able to do that? Do we love Christ enough? to do that? Do we love our fellow believers enough to show them true faith and to stand fast on that faith? I think Paul means this in an individualistic way. Each believer must study to see that his personal root system of love is growing to match his outward appearance. The other meaning comes from the word established or translated established, or some translations have it founded. This is like the foundation of a building. And he uses it in more of a collective sense. You're established. You're established. Do you have a solid foundation? That's the question you need to ask yourself. The scripture likens us unto a building, a spiritual temple built together in Jesus Christ. Peter calls us rocks or stones in that building. Buildings are like trees in the sense the foundation has to have a certain proportion of weight to the structure 
right, will have trouble standing under stress. If we believe this to the church, but if we apply this to the church as believers bound together in one body or one building, we see our need collectively to be strong in God's word. We see in this that those individual believers who are firmly rooted in God's word will flourish and bear much fruit. The church as a whole, which is solidly grounded, will continue to grow in a holy sanctuary in the Lord and will achieve its purpose, which is to be strong in faith and love. He says they may have power, which they use to show others this wonderful message of hope. How is this power or strength going to be made effective in the lives of believers? It requires not just the work of Christ in the heart and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but also the coming together with all the saints. Here is a more on this mystery of the church of Jesus Christ. Yes, believers can stand alone, but they will never reach the zenith of the power promised by Christ until they have come together with other believers. This is the mystery of the church that power is given collectively to believers. You're called out of this world of darkness and rebellion into the glorious light of Christ and in union with him and with your fellow believers. The essence of rebellion is loneliness, which is shown as you against the world. Is that not what loneliness is? You're standing by yourself with no one to help you. The man who tries to stand alone apart from other believers is the same as the man with all the faith in the world and no love. He is nothing. The church is the body of Jesus Christ. It cannot function unless these, those in it are filled with love for Christ Jesus, its head, and for those who make up the body. This is not a call for evangelical union with any and everybody who claims to be Christian. It is a call to come together with all who hold to the sufficiency of the scripture and acknowledge who Jesus Christ is and what he has accomplished for his people. My friends, we need one another. The whole idea of growing in Christ is built upon our being helpers to each other. Iron sharpening iron. We must debate. We must discuss the truths of Scripture if we're to understand them. We must listen to one another and be Bereans and study God's word if we want to be, as Paul prays, strong in our faith and established in God's love. He gives us a picture of what we should be striving for when he says we should be seeking what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is it he wants you to know? He wants you to know and, yes, experience with one another the love of God. He wants you to know how wide it is, how long it extends, how high it soars, and how deep it plunges into the human experience. He wants you to know that no matter how far you go to one side or the other, no matter how far you travel or how high you climb or how deep you descend, you cannot exhaust the love of God. The love of God is greater than anything we know. 
he says it surpasses knowledge. So he prays in Ephesians 3.19 that you and all believers may be filled with all the fullness of God. You can't be filled only because you are a finite vessel. You, I'm sorry I said it wrong. You can be filled only because you're a finite vessel. He wants you to understand that God's love can never be exhausted, not by one believer, nor by them all collectively. That is why John Newton wrote, could write in his great hymn, Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we've first begun. We can never, this is wonderful, we can never exhaust God nor anything about him. But because of his grace, we can enjoy as much as we can hold. Verse 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul points out in this offering of praise that our God is greater, greater than we can even begin to comprehend. He can do immeasurable more than we can even ask. He can even do more than our puny minds can imagine. He has saved you from evil, from Satan, sin, and death. You were saved only by his power. You didn't have anything to add to your salvation. It was exclusively by his power, and it is that same power that saved you that is carrying you through to be with him in heaven. Please do not think that you add anything to this, for that is an abomination before God. It is expressly because it is all done by his power that Paul adds, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Where's the glory to be revealed? In the church. In Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ and his body, the church, are one. You cannot separate them. Whatever Jesus receives, the church receives as well. Therefore, when glory is given to Christ, it is also given to the church. And who makes up the church? Those who are in Jesus by faith. My friends, Please don't close your mind and heart to this, for to do so is to miss a great blessing. The blessing, Paul says, you will miss is the spiritual riches of Christ. The spiritual riches of Christ come in abundance only to those who are a part of the church. Paul says, regardless of the generation, the church is Christ's vessel for dispensing his word and through which men are blessed by his presence. Where are you in your understanding of Christ's church? Ask yourself that question. Contemplate. Think on it. It's a good question. Study it diligently for the proper understanding carries with it eternal promises. Can you begin to see just how much importance Paul and, of course, the Holy Spirit through him puts on the church? <coughs> Paul has laid out for us a clear understanding of the gospel of Christ in chapter 1 and 2. Here in chapter 3, 
He has made it equally clear that the church of Jesus Christ is important to all who believe and trust in Christ for their salvation. God sent Jesus into this world to die for the sins of his people. He sent the Holy Spirit into the world to draw his people together into one body that could act as witnesses for him and his love of grace. You must come into that love if you want to know God and have peace with him. So how do you do that? You search your heart. You acknowledge the sin and rebellion that is there. You call out to Jesus Christ and ask his forgiveness. And you join with his people in a loving relationship where you can grow in your understanding of what he did for you in Jesus Christ. For all who will do this, he promises to make you a part of his family and to call you his own. Let's pray. Glorious God, Almighty Lord, we come this day with thankful hearts for the gifts of your Son, Jesus Christ. You sent him into this world as your word. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from you, Father, full of grace and truth. He came making you himself nothing, making himself nothing, taking on our very nature, being made in our likeness. He did this to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He came to bring us justification. He justified us through Christ's works and freed us from the bondage of sin and set us free to follow him. He did this so we would not have to, to do it ourselves. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name, amen. If you take your hymnals and turn to him 207.